0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Since 1990, every year around Earth Day, the Goldman Environmental Prize winners are announced. There's one prize winner from each of the six inhabited continents, and each receives $150,000. Past winners include Nobel laureate Wangari Mathai, and all the winners are cited for their grassroots activism. This year's winners range from Italian zero-waste activist Rossini Ercolini to Indonesian forest defender Aleta Baun, to Colombian recycler Nora Padilla. And there are three more we'll speak with in our broadcast, starting with Azam Awash of Iraq, who returned to his native land after 25 years in America to fight for the restoration of the Mesopotamian marshlands.
1: The marshes of southern Iraq are a magical world. They are a wetland, water world, in the middle of a parched, flat desert. My memories of the place are very warm in my heart. It is a place where I went around with my father in a in a boat as a young boy to my mind's eye the reeds towered above the boat covered the sky the water was clear the fish darting away from the boats and every now and then we come to a clearing and the breeze hits your face and cools you down and you contrast that to the rock i came back to 25 years after i left death and destruction replaced this verdant place this this eden Uh, Where there were reeds before, there were now tumbleweeds. Where there was water, there's salt-encrusted desert. When there was clear blue skies, it
0: became dust-colored yellowish sky. And as I understand it, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, drained thousands of square kilometers of these wetlands to both, I guess, punish the people who lived there and also to make it tougher for rebels who were operating from there. Have that right
1: indeed the marshes of southern iraq are our shirut forest for eternity the marsh arabs went into the marshes and hid from the sheriff of baghdad or uh, at any given time it's a place where the army cannot pursue you where you know the neighborhood better than anybody else and where you can live off of nature without the need for outside resources and so in 91 following the liberation of kuwait the iraqi people went into rebellion saddam hussein was afraid that the rebels would be used by the West to undermine his regime. And at a time when Iraq was not allowed to sell a single drop of oil, the entire GDP of the nation went into this massive, incredible project that ended up in the drying of the marshes or depriving the marshes of their source of life,
0: of the water of the Tigris and Euphrates. It sounds like a massive project that Saddam Hussein did, and therefore a massive project to undo. How did, how did you go about restoring these marshlands, and where did the money come from to move all that earth? Ah, well, nature moves water. You see, all you have to do is dig a small
1: ditch, maybe a foot wide, to the water level. And you know what? As soon as the water starts flowing, it starts washing the earth away, and the force of nature uh, widens the breach from... A one-foot breach to 10 feet to 20 feet, depending on how much water there is. Within six months of water coming back to certain places where the conditions are just right, reeds begin growing, and with the water comes the fish from upstream, and the water buffalo comes back, and the people start coming back. Now, you all have to understand that the Marsh Arabs are not tree huggers like me or you. They are restoring the marshes because... It is a way of life. It is a place where they can make a living out of. It's about the economy. It's not about the environment. It's a place where sustainable development and sustainable living has been practiced for thousands
0: of years before we even knew this way of life by those terms. As I understand it, there's a proposed dam in Turkey, the Elisu, along the Tigris that, well, wouldn't it cut the amount of water that uh, these marshlands now get down to a trickle again?
1: Well, commensurate with the drying of the marshes, Turkey began building not only the Liso Dam, but a series of huge dams, about 33 major dams that um, are holding the water of the Tigris and Euphrates away from the marshes. And in fact, these dams have changed the biodiversity of the marshes. The flood water that comes in in the spring as the snows of the mountains of Kurdistan start melting creates these marshes and drives the biodiversity of the marshes. These floods come in just as the reeds are turning from uh, winter hibernation, just as the birds are migrating, just as the fish is spawning. But more importantly, these floods, in fact, renewed the life of agricultural land, the grasslands around the perimeter of the marshes. And these floods essentially made agriculture sustainable in Iraq for seven, 8,000 years because there's a new layer of silt and clay that gets deposited every year from these floods. And one of the negative impacts of dams is the change of the hydrological cycle of rivers. So forevermore, or at least while the dams exist, the biodiversity of the marshes is going to change. We are changing from a flood system to a more brackish system. And I keep on telling the Iraqi officials that I'm not worried about the future of the marshes. Reeds can live in brackish water. Rice can't. And if the Iraqi government doesn't do anything to address the issue of flood irrigation, not only in Iraq, but in Turkey and Syria,
0: then agriculture will die in the land where it was born. Azam Awash of Iraq is one of this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. And now we turn to Kimberly Wasserman, who won for her community organizing that led to the shutdown of two coal-fired power plants within the city limits of Chicago. Let me start by asking, how did you learn about the health effects of coal plants on people who live near them?
2: I heard about it first through the door-to-door organizing I did as a community organizer with uh, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. Um, I had just had my firstborn son, and I was taking him with me to go door-to-door and just talk with our neighbors. And over the course of the first couple of weeks... We really started to see a lot of families who had children with asthma or adults with asthma or seniors They were being impacted by bronchitis and other respiratory issues. And then about two months into my work, my son had uh, an asthma attack, and in taking him to the emergency room um, and talking with a doctor, we learned that asthma actually isn't inherited um, it's based on the environment that you lived in. And so that was really the ammunition for myself to continue to go door-to-door and really try to find out, was there really a source for the air quality issues in our neighborhood? And over the course of about a year, we came across the coal power plant, a plant that looked very unassuming. It gave off white smoke that a lot of our young people had called the cloud factory. And when we started to understand what the process for converting coal into electricity was and started to understand that there was actually a lot of contamination coming out of the smokestacks, we realized that we really believe that this might be the source of a lot of our problems.
0: Now, as I gather, your neighborhood, the little village, is largely people of Mexican descent with a number of folks who don't have the appropriate paperwork to be in the United States. I imagine they were nervous about all this organizing and attention that you were, you were bringing to the neighborhood.
2: Most definitely, you know, as as the Mexican Midwest capital, definitely immigration, language and income played a lot into how people participated. But I think our leadership development really hit to that because we wanted our community members to know that regardless of language, regardless of immigration status, you have a fundamental right to clean air, clean land and clean water. We may not um, speak English, but we pay our taxes. Um, We pay them every time we buy something in the store. We pay them every time we pay a mortgage on our house. And we are contributing to the society in our community Um, and really just empowering our community to know that this is about their rights. Um, And reminding our politicians that we don't owe you anything. You owe us. Politicians work for us. We don't work for them. And if we can't change the way they're doing things, then we'll vote in the person who will.
0: Now, take me back to a point where you had some researchers come in and document just how deadly these plants were for your community and what the reaction was to the numbers that they came up with.
2: About two years after we started going door-to-door, the Harvard School of Public Health released a report on the coal power plants in Illinois. When we got our hands on it and we saw that, in fact, what we believed was true, that 41 people... A year died in our community because of the coal power plants, over 3,000 asthma attacks a year and over 1,500 emergency room visits a year. That was the ammunition that our community needed to go to our politicians and say— how can you sell our community out for profit? How can you sacrifice us for the sake of industry? Where did we go wrong as a community? Where did we go wrong as a nation? And unfortunately, the reality was that 41 people dying a year did not move our politicians. They looked at it as, well, for the sake of jobs, We'll keep killing your people in your community. And it really took the education of not just our community, but all the communities in Chicago to understand that the air pollution did not stop at our boundaries of our community. It impacted us all, and we all had to hold these folks accountable.
0: Those numbers are astonishing. I mean, if the plants were there for 40 years and killed about 40 people a year, that's like 1,600 people died.
2: Exactly. And actually, they were there for about 60 years, so we're looking at about 3,000 people.
0: What happened to those power plants, and how has your neighborhood changed as a result of your work?
2: As of leap day of last year, the coal power plant announced that they would be shutting down, and in September of 2012, they did. The air quality has greatly improved. You know, we are right now working on collecting a lot of the data to understand how have the asthma rates locally been impacted, but we do know that by looking at other cities, when Atlanta hosted the Olympics, uh, the local emergency rooms actually saw an 8% drop because the highways were shut down in downtown Atlanta to accommodate the Olympics. And so if you can have an 8% drop just from shutting down the local highways, we can only imagine what the impact would be by shutting down two of the dirtiest coal power plants in Chicago.
0: As part of our Earth Day coverage, we're speaking with some of this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. That was Kimberly Wasserman of Chicago, and now we go to Jonathan Deal of South Africa. He took on Shell Oil and its plans to frack for gas in South Africa's wild and scenic drylands, known as the Karoo.
3: The Karoo, it's a rural area, uh, quite sparsely populated. To give people a parallel in the United States, it looks something like Wyoming. It's a very arid area with a beautiful and rich diversity of succulents. And one of the unique things about it is that everybody that lives in it, wherever they come from and whatever their culture or creed is, has some type of historical connection with the Karoo. Their families either come from there or they've got some memory of the Karoo. And my personal love affair with the environment there started when I wrote and published a book in 2007 called Timeless Karoo. Tell me, what exactly have you been
0: able to accomplish in terms of blocking the fracking in South Africa there?
3: At the very least, um, even if it were to go ahead, we would have a very stringent set of rules and conditions and a much more delayed and measured start to the technology than what you have seen in the United States. It has put our government into a position where they could negotiate with a company like Shell to get far more benefits for the country from any sort of revenues if it ever went ahead. You have a national moratorium on it at this point. Uh, The moratorium was lifted in September the 8th last year and uh, the Minister of Environment who is a fairly arrogant lady almost gave the impression that the licenses for exploration would be issued in a week or two and here we are in April the next year and I believe that it's as a result of a number of formal letters that we have written to the government promising them that if they issue exploration licenses under these circumstances we will see them in court. Jonathan, what can Americans who oppose fracking in this country learn from your efforts? It's a two-way street. What we can learn together is to harness the power of the media. I want to leave America with the guts of a global coalition starting. And um, whether I'm busy in a small town in the northern Cape of South Africa called Williston, or we're talking about an activist busy with the town of Williston in North Dakota, we need to be able to speak to a local representative and say, you might think that this issue is local and that you're going to get away with sweeping it under the carpet, but I'm promising you that we're going to take it global. Now, something that's true for all of you is getting other people on board. How hard or how easy was
0: that for each of you? I mean, Kimberly, you had to convince folks who are undocumented to speak up. Uh, Assam, you lived in a very dangerous part of the world. and. Of course, Jonathan the Carew
3: is this vast rural place, not a lot of people. Steve, it's very difficult to get people to respond to something unless they feel an immediate threat because essentially you're asking them to sacrifice uh, time or money, uh, resources that are, are very scarce to a lot of people. Essentially, the way I had to pitch it was to tell them that we're working on the future. This is not for us. It's for future generations of unborn Africans. The effects of what's going to happen is going to come home to roost in future generations. In the case of the Marsh Arabs or
1: Iraq in general, the most difficult task was to convince people that democracy works, that if you actually organize and make sure that your voice reaches decision-makers, change will come. The Iraqis that I met in 2003 had grown up under 50 years of authoritarian regimes where decisions come from top and everybody executes without question. Then you tell them that 10 of you can come up to Baghdad to tell decision makers about the desires of your community. And the difficulty was, the first time they went, there was no action. The second time they went, there was no action. And to keep on preaching to them that in the end it will work Uh, That was the difficult task. But now, they actually organize trips on their own. It's beautiful. They are learning the skills needed to survive in a democratic Iraq.
0: Now, it's clear that your hard work paid off for all of you. But there must have been times during the process that you wanted to give up. Where were those? And how did you get past those low points? Yeah. When
1: your daughter calls you crying because you missed a birthday... When your wife calls you because there's a bill that she doesn't know how to deal with, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It is times when you question your sanity and what is it that you're doing. But the job is not done, and you can't leave it midway.
2: I think the hardest part is when you fail, when you try to have something happen be it an ordinance or a law or a moratorium or you try something that doesn't work you can very easily just decide you know what I have nothing left in me and I have nothing else to give but I think the hard part is getting up and and wiping yourself off and standing up and saying you know what I'm going to learn whatever lesson it is that I'm supposed to learn from this and I'm going to stand back up again, and I'm going to keep moving forward and try to find that muster to keep moving on. And I think knowing that as much as we sacrifice with our families and as much as we sacrifice with our community, that they're looking to us to do the right thing and to keep moving forward.
0: You've spent a number of of hours, days now, with the other prize winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. What have you learned from meeting each other?
2: I think that what I've learned is that the answer is right here in front of us, and it comes from every corner of the world. The reality is is that our solutions are in our voice and in our communities, and we just need to keep fighting and pushing them forward.
3: I've learned that there are battles around the world that many of us are not even aware of. I've met three women, the prize recipients, Kimberly, Nora, and Letta, And um, the, the two ladies, one from Indonesia and the other one from Colombia, are absolutely the bravest women I've ever met. Here, here. For me to stand up um, against a giant like Shell in a, in a well-functioning democracy like South Africa is one thing. For them to take on the corporate and the government interests in countries like Colombia and Indonesia takes real guts. I'm looking at every one
1: of us, and my conclusion is that we're all stubborn. We do not give up. Mm. And that's what it takes, I think.
0: Zahm Alwash is an Iraqi Jonathan Deals is a South African, and Kimberly Wasserman is from the south side of Chicago. They're three of this year's six Goldman Environmental Prize winners. Thanks to all of you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. you